1: So, no big deal, but we have one of the funniest humans alive on today's show. She's not
2: faking. <laughs> How do you know?
0: I know, I can tell. It's one of my powers. <laughs> Why'd you have a fake? Of course. Really? You fake?
2: <laughs> on occasion.
0: And the guy never knows?
2: Yeah.
0: How could he not know that? Because I was good. <laughs> I guess after that many beers, he's probably a little groggy anyway. (laughs) You didn't know. You didn't know. Are you saying... I think I'll have a piece of cake with me? Well... You faked with me? Yeah. You faked with me? Yes. No. Yes. You faked it? I faked it. That whole thing, the whole production, it was all an act.
2: Not bad, huh?
0: What about the breathing, the panting, the moaning, the screaming?
2: Fake, 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 fake.
1: This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that, of course, was Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Elaine Bennis, on Seinfeld. So, you know, I tell a lot of guests on this show that I have been a fan of theirs for a long time, but this is different. I realize I'm not alone in thinking Julia is an all-time great in the comedy world, but as someone who has watched every episode of Seinfeld more times than seems feasibly possible, I am beyond excited that she is on the show today. Julia has had such a remarkable comedy career, and we get into as much of it as we could in this episode, from her rocky start at SNL at just 21 years old to her Emmy-dominating run on Veep. But we began our conversation by talking about Julia's two latest projects, a new podcast called Wiser Than Me, in which she interviews older women like Jane Fonda and Fran Lebowitz, and a new film called You Hurt My Feelings, written and directed by Nicole Holofcener, That arrives in theaters next Friday, May 26th. We had so much to talk about and honestly not enough time to do it. So let's get right into it now. Here's me with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Thank you for doing this. Um, And, you know, before we get to the movie, I really just have to tell you that I have been absolutely loving your podcast.
2: Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that very much.
1: Yeah, you are... I mean, I'm not surprised, but you are such a natural at it. Um, and it's just I think it's been so great. So what made you want to do that?
2: Well, I'll tell you exactly. I was um sorry, I'm eating a piece of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> um I uh, I watched the Jane Fonda documentary. And I was so I don't know if you've seen it. Um I haven't,
1: no. Well you but should I, watch but it because you to would now, be yeah.
2: In, yeah, it's so it's captivating. And I was just so struck by like, how come we're never hearing from these older ladies? We just never hear from, them. I mean, we just don't. And that's how it began. And I just thought, I want to hear from these women. You know, I really do. I really want to hear how they've done it. And so
1: that's what it, that's how it was born. It's called Wiser Than Me. And I was curious what the, ex- what the exact criteria is for you. What, how do you choose who you want to talk to?
0: So the criteria
2: are just, Frankly, women I want to hear from. So it's just like my own curiosity, and we sort of are trying to make make it to be roughly around seventy and above. Roughly, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I think it's re- it's really great, and um, but yeah, I want to I want to get into the movie. You hurt my feelings. This is your second film with Nicole Hollifield Center after Enough Said, which I loved as well. I think they're both really fantastic films. Um, Thank you. Do you feel like, you know, between that movie and this movie, does her writing allow you to show a a different side of yourself, a different skill set as an actor than you think you have in other roles?
2: Um, Yes, I believe so. Um, Because she's so, um, as a writer, she so brilliantly straddles the very believable uh, world of drama and comedy. In real life, and how they intertwine with one another, and that is a very appealing to me. and it's something I like. i I, I like that tone, yeah, it definitely. really um it it it's the kind of thing I like to see in in when I go to the movies. um, and so the opportunity to do that, you know, it's kind of it's kind of a small sort of a performance, really.
1: Yeah, there's such a specificity to her work that I love, where there's just these moments in the film that I feel like just would not be in other movies, because it's like, it doesn't, there are these moments that don't necessarily drive the the plot forward, but they just tell you something about the characters, or they tell you something about this world, and I think those moments are really great.
2: Yeah, and it's all very choice and very intentional on her part, you know? It's very um, curated. These moments are very curated.
1: It has such a great premise. You know, your character is a, a writer who overhears her husband admitting that he doesn't like her new book. I mean, if I say even the slightest thing, she falls apart. I thought that you liked her writing. I do, generally. but I, I I don't like
2: this new book.
1: And this is a memoir? No, no,
2: no. She's, uh, she's written a novel. It's fiction. It's kind of a kind of mystery...
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just feel stuck. And I just I, I don't know what to do. Does so that make sense? I don't know. Oh, shit. Man. Can you say anything? No, I but I can't. I can't. I could have, maybe should have. You know, like second, third, 20th, read. 20th, re? Yeah, yeah. Draft after draft after draft. She was asking for notes and I didn't know how to, and now it feels too late. And it's no good. Not to me. Just made me think about how people you know, in general, but people in Hollywood tend to be overly complimentary about everything. And, you know, if you go, if you have a movie premiere, you're not, no one's going to tell you it's bad at the movie premiere. No. Um, it's kind of shocking to hear someone in your own life say that they didn't like something. Um, did you have any experience like that to draw on for this, for what that was like for, for your character in the film?
2: Well, not in a sense, uh, <clears throat> uh, not with my spouse, but I could certainly imagine it. Yeah. I could fantasize what it would be like. And I can tell you that just even thinking about it makes my skin crawl. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh Are you are you able to sympathize or empathize with both sides of this, you know, dispute, this marriage in the in the film where you can sort of understand where the husband is coming from as well as your own character? Yes.
2: Oh, yeah. They're no bad guys. I mean, everybody's just making some mistakes, (laughs) maybe multiple mistakes. Um, and um, these are not badly intentioned people. Um, but the character I play is very needy and uh, without an enormous amount of confidence. Oh, my God. Oh my Wait, God. Beth. Beth. Oh, I, my God. I think they were talking about something else. Oh, I can't believe this. No, I mean, maybe when it's her. Then I'm gonna be sick. Oh, no. You are? Yeah, I think I'm going to throw okay. up. Right, right, right there, right there, right there. It's like, it's it, oh, God, right here? <laughs> oh, God. Oh. <laughs> uh. No, I don't think I can. I can't. He loves you more than life itself. What does that have to do with anything I'm here? I'm saying that he doesn't love your book, OK? He doesn't love your book. I mean, who cares? Do you understand? I've been working on this book for two years, uh-huh. right? I've given him, like, a million drafts to read. And every time he reads it, Every single time he tells me how much he loves it. Every single time! Because he just doesn't, like, you know, get it or whatever. And now my hands have gone numb. Yeah? For real. Okay, can you take a deep breath? I am breathing, Sarah. All right. Would you just... You're gonna talk to him. Well, that's a joke. I am never gonna be able to look him in the face ever again. Okay, that's over.
1: How do you feel like, do you handle criticism now versus earlier in your career? Does it, right. does it hit you very differently now than it did when you were starting out?
2: Hmm. I think so. I think I'm a little more confident now that I'm older, but <laughs> it's, it's nicer to get a compliment <laughs> than it is a a criticism you know um, well, it might also
1: be true that you you know you haven't gotten much negative criticism in in this later part of your career just because your work has been so incredible in the projects that you've worked on so that might be a factor too right i mean that you it maybe has been a while since you've even heard negative criticism
2: no i've heard negative
1: criticism and <laughs>
2: and um but somehow there's always a little sting but maybe the sting doesn't last as long
1: Yeah, I remember you talking about in some other interviews and other platforms that you know talking about getting bad reviews uh, for SNL when you were starting out. um, Both you know in print and even from people in your own life. Yes, um, was that a particularly you know difficult situation for you when because it was so you were so young? You were I think twenty one right when you started on that show. Yes,
2: yes. And Tom Shales, for example, was um, and may still well be the. A critic at the Washington Post. And he said some nasty stuff about me. And that was my parents lived in that town. So it... That's tough. That did hurt
1: my feelings. Yeah.
2: It, but he subsequently came around. He said some nice things <laughs> since then.
1: Um, you know, you've talked about how you you didn't necessarily succeed at Saturday Night Live the way you wanted to. Have you thought about, you know, looking back, what factors caused that? Because I think it's clearly not a a lack of comedic talent on your part. So was it a not a great fit or was it the culture of the place or what do you think, you know, made it so that you couldn't be as successful?
2: Well, I think it was men. I think it was many, many things. Um, I was very young and inexperienced. So I have to take some ownership here. I didn't go into that gig with like a big bag of characters and accents and stuff that I could sort of pull out. I was just sort of, I had this somewhat foolish idea uh that people would write for me because I was in the cast. So they'll write me sketches and then I'll um, uh, but it didn't quite work like that. And so that um so I came into a very green. It was an incredibly misogynistic, drug addled atmosphere. Um, and it was really hard for me to navigate.
1: Yeah. Was there anything that you feel like you would do differently if you could do it again now, you know, knowing what you know now?
2: Yeah, and I did when I went back to host. And that was the amazing thing. Yeah, when I went back to host, I don't know when it was, the first time. It was an incredible experience because I knew what I I had decades and decades of experience, and I could bring to – now, of course, being a host and being – A cast member are two different things. However, there is some overlap here, and I understood what I needed to do in order to make the hosting gig work. Um, And I had a confidence that I absolutely didn't have when I was 21, I can tell you that right now. And the system had, I mean, other things had changed too. It was different producers running the show, and they're running it very competently. It was... um, Uh, certainly not a misogynistic at least to my eye atmosphere a lot of very strong powerful funny women were there tina amy kristen all of them when i was there the first time to host um so it was a, a very different culture but i did know but the uh the schedule and the actual practicality of doing this show uh starting on a monday to that saturday has not changed (laughs) yeah and so i knew what my I, i knew the protocols and i knew what my agenda had to be oh man it is so nice to be back i had a blast hosting last year and wow things have been going really really well for me my show the new adventures of old christine is a big fat hit thank you which was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> do, we, do we have a clip? Oh, I brought one. Oh, that's great. Oh, well, then let's watch it.
1: That must have been very strange, though, to go back, you know, with a different, totally different power dynamic and so many years later and sort of the, going back to the same thing but having it feel really different.
2: Yeah, it really was. Something else I got to tell. But, you know, the, when I went back the first time to host, I was the first I was the first former female cast member to ever be invited back to host. They hadn't had anyone else. Is that true? Yeah.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. I did not realize that. Coming up, we dig into more highlights from Julia's career, including what she really thought about the Seinfeld finale and what working on Veep taught her about the absurdity of American politics. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with some of Julia's many co-stars from over the years, like SNL castmate Martin Short, Veep scene partner Tony Hale, and You Hurt My Feelings co-star Michaela Watkins, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now back to Julia Louis Dreyfus. Seinfeld, you know, it seems like from the outside, it was just such a better fit for you comedically and, and the sensibility of it than SNL was. Mm-hmm. Did you did you feel that and what made it what made it better for you?
2: Well, first of all, it was written exceptionally well. And it was, um, there there was nothing like it on television at the time.
1: I believe you auditioned for the show with this very quintessential scene about nothing, right, where it's you and and Jerry talking about going out to do something, but you're not hungry, but you'll, you know, go if you don't have to talk.
2: Come on, let's go do something. I don't want to just sit around here. Okay. Want to go get something to eat? Where do you want to go? I don't care. I'm not hungry.
0: (laughs) We go to one of those uh, cappuccino places. They let you just sit there.
2: What are we going to do there, talk?
0: <laughs> we can
2: talk? I'll go if I don't have to talk. <laughs> you
0: we know, will just sit there.
2: I'm going to check my machine first.
1: When you read that scene in the audition, what did that tell you about you know what this show was going to be and, and what appealed to you about that particularly?
2: It told me everything about what the show was going to be. It was very much like Larry David's voice. I knew Larry back from SNL days. I knew that this sort of really weird, quirky writing was something that I understood in my bones. So it felt very natural to me. It felt like me, you know?
1: Yeah. And then obviously Elaine is not in the pilot, but then you come in in that second episode. So what was it like to to enter that world as the, you know, you're the only female character on this show of these four people? Um you know, how did you think about that and your role in the show? Was there a pressure to have a, you know, put that female perspective in the show? Because obviously that was the note that they got after that first episode that they needed another element in the show.
2: Right. Well, I never really approached it like, uh, you know, my my the perspective from my gender, per se. I wanted to just play ball with everybody. So I'm I'm not going to lie in the beginning. I didn't always have a lot to do in certain Episodes, and I would, uh, I would go to Larry and Jerry. I, I went. I would say multiple times and say, "Hey, you guys, write me more. I need to be in the show more. I need to be in the show more." And that's what I just kept doing. And they did.
1: Yeah, it's so funny because in the episode about the pilot that they're making, that's basically what happens is they are figuring out they re- they're realizing that they don't know how to write for a woman. <laughs> so they kind of were self aware about that. I think.
0: Hey, you know, we, we haven't brought the Elaine character into the show yet. Um, we should try and get her into this scene. Right, yeah. right.
2: Okay. Elaine enters. Right.
0: What does she say? I don't know. What do women say? I don't know. I don't even know what they think. That's why I'm in therapy. You know, if we bring Elena, there's going to be so many people to keep track of. If it's going to be too hard, I forget where everybody's standing. You, me, Kramer, the butlers, too much. All right, forget Elena. All right.
2: Right, but then you see, they didn't write for me as a woman. They just wrote for me, for this character, as opposed to this, you know, gender, which I think is instructive in a lot of ways, from a writing point of view.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry David's famous mantra about the show was, no hugging, no learning. Yes. Um, but I I did want to know if you feel like, playing Elaine over nine seasons, did she evolve? Did she change? Or did she really stay the same for you?
2: I think she evolved. I think she got angrier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. How how did that manifest for you?
2: I mean, you know, you have to wonder why these four characters would always hang out together. They're constantly (laughs) bickering. They're constantly getting into uh, trouble uh, in one way or another, losing money. You know, just, it was, there was some line. I cannot, I can't remember what it was. I cannot keep coming into this, Apartment I wish I could remember the line, but it was something I think that Elaine said. It would used to make us laugh so much. <laughs> I wish Jerry was here because I could ask him that I, I cannot keep coming into this apartment day after day and something about you with you three morons. But I again I'm I'm totally butchering it and it's, and it was much funnier than what I just said. What? What is going on with you no, two? I don't want
0: to talk about it. <laughs>
2: Ah, there it is. Okay, I got it. I'll see you later.
0: Hey, 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 wait a second. Where are you going? I hardly ever see you anymore.
2: Well, I... I guess I've been at Reggie's.
0: The Bizarro Coffee Shop?
2: Kevin and his friends are nice people. They do good things. They read. I read. Books, Jerry.
0: Oh. (laughs) Big deal.
2: I can't spend the rest of my life coming into this stinking apartment every 10 minutes to pour over the excruciating minutia of every single daily event. Why
0: not? Like yesterday, I went to the bank to make a deposit, and the teller gives me this look I'll like- see you
2: later, man. I gotta go.
1: I like how you say, you know, it's hard to believe that they would keep hanging out together. But there was they did have the ability within the show to make each other laugh, which was so important, I think. Totally. So you that that could tell you why they would, you know, continue to. uh, And we
2: and we as actors had a ball together.
1: Yeah. And also, like, who else would hang out with these people? So maybe they needed each other. Yeah,
2: really. They were complete
1: (laughs) misfits. I have to ask you about this. I interviewed Larry Charles years ago, and he was telling me the story about the script he wrote about Elaine buying a gun. Do you know about this? Yeah, that he wrote the script, and then that's basically why he left the show is that he, the studio rejected the idea. Did you ever see that script? Did you? Was it actually something? Yeah, we did a table table read of it.
2: Yeah, Yeah. we did a table read. What do you
1: remember about it? I remember everybody.
2: I remember it didn't get a lot of laughs. laughs. Oh, okay.
1: So that, that may have been I mean, more I, of the I reason than me, the subject I love matter. Larry,
2: I, I love Larry Charles. Don't misunderstand. But that script felt a little dark.
1: Yeah. Out of place for the show. <laughs> Too dark than it was ready to go at that time. Maybe it got a little darker towards the end. I don't know.
2: Maybe. But I think it was it was uh, beyond out of people's comfort zones. And that's saying something on that show.
1: <laughs> Um, The finale, obviously, you know, very divisive. Um, I love this, the moment that you did on the final, David Letterman's final show, where you came out in the top 10 and said that line about, um, you know, taking part in another hugely disappointing series finale with Jerry standing right behind you. And he just did the perfect, you know, they did the perfect cut to him and his reaction.
2: Thanks for letting me take part in another hugely disappointing series finale.
1: It feels like the finale in a show like that is kind of just a no-win situation, like you can't please everybody and, and that's just what it is. What did you, you know, actually think of it at the time, you know, when you were doing it? Were you, were you happy with the way that this show ended?
2: Well, I, it was, I will say that just from a purely from an emotional point of view, it was, um, it was really a delight to sit there in that courtroom and watch one guest actor after another.
1: That must have been Parade
2: fair. through. I mean, it's like we were watching the show. And so there was, it, it, that was really fun, um, that aspect of it. But I understood why people were uh, were disappointed. I mean, first of all, expectations were ridiculous. Um, but I also understood, because we didn't do too much in it. You know, once we were, in, uh, once we'd been arrested and in court, you know, it was just a it was exactly as I say. It was just us sitting there watching these one person after
1: another parade through. Yeah. I assume Jerry knew that you were going to make that joke on Letterman. That wasn't a genuine uh, surprise reaction from him. Of course. <laughs> yes. I love that, though. Um, so, in
2: fact, in yeah. fact, there was a different joke that the Letterman writers had written for me to say. And I was arguing with them about it because I didn't want to say it because I didn't think it was funny enough. And then they pulled out sort of a list of alt jokes, alternative jokes, and this was on it.
1: Oh, that's and hilarious. both Jerry
2: and I were like that one. <laughs>
1: I'm glad you. I'm glad you s- stepped in on that. Yeah. Uh, so Veep, uh, you know, is another incredible show. Obviously, uh, some other Seinfeld alums were involved in it, but it's so different from Seinfeld in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, what were the sort of biggest differences for you? Um, you know, making. Seinfeld and and making Veep, you're obviously at the center of the show. But then just the way that that you that the production went about it,
2: totally different experience. I mean, I it was an ensemble for sure, um, but I I did produce it. It was single camera. Uh, we shot on location. Uh, it was a completely different. Uh, um, uh, what what should I say? Um, style brand of comedy it was and and i don't mean to imply better or worse just it was its own thing i think like seinfeld was its own thing um and um it had a different tone and um and once again it was a complete it was a sheer delight to do albeit incredibly uh
1: challenging 'cause it was it was longer days than Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those live those uh you know those old style sitcoms were probably an, an easier gig in some ways.
2: Mm. Well, maybe. I mean, I think for the writers it's just always hard. But in the single camera world, you know, I mean it was just and also, you know, those those the VEEP shows, you know, they would cut together and we whatever they are, 28, 29 minutes on HBO. Well, in p- point of fact each episode was probably 55 minutes and we had to crunch 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 it down um and uh so it took a lot to get that very snappy pace you know it had a different it had a different uh pace to it a different
1: pace uh, after the uh the episode where selena's mother dies and you do that you know insane laugh uh, moment uh, david mandel told uh, the Daily Beast, actually, that you were, quote, the only human on Earth who could have played that.
0: <laughs> What's going on? What's everyone cheering about? Is Mima better? Catherine, I thought you were here. No, I went to get coffee. I asked you if you wanted anything. No, I I didn't hear you say that. Wait, she's gone? You, you pulled the plug without me?
2: It wasn't a plug. It was a ventilator tube that they just... Oh, darling. Oh, honey. No, 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 no. Sh didn't know you weren't here, honey. She's brain dead. Baby doll, she was brain dead. We got good news about Nevada. <laughs> Wait, what? We got good news from Nevada. <laughs> hmm?
1: Mom? So I was wondering, from your perspective, what do you remember about that moment? I remember. I remember that
2: it came to me as we were shooting it. And I just and I just put the I put my foot on the gas. (laughs) I just kept doing it because it was making. It was also it was so outrageous what was happening. And I I got a huge kick out of of that moment, I have to
1: say. So there was an element of genuine laughter on your part at the at the situation.
2: Yeah. genuine yes. And 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 I I knew I sort of fell into it and then I realized it was working. And I just, like I say, I, I put my my foot on the gas.
1: I think that's one of many moments that really exemplify Selena's profound narcissism. Uh mm. and uh I was listening to your podcast and you talk about how your you call your, your father a very, you know, deep, uh, narcissist. And I was wondering if you ever made that connection while playing Selena, um, oh. to your own life and, and sort of, you know, the relation, the, you know, there's a mother daughter relationship on, on Veep and then maybe your own relationship, um, in that way.
2: Hmm. I hadn't thought of it like that. I mean, cause my dad, um, yes, he was a narcissist, but he was also a really charming one and
1: right. incredibly <laughs> something, intelligent. Something Selena is lacking.
2: Exactly. And very charismatic. Um so um for me, I think it was in terms of playing Selena, it was more like uh um how can I say this? The parallels. I I, I could understand her nastiness and um her bitter frustration and, and her um rabid ambition. Um they, they it's DC is not a kind place to women, and um, and frankly, the parallels between uh, uh, the political world and show business they they exist. So there was plenty to sort of tap into um, in that sense. You know,
1: can you talk about more about those parallels between uh, you know the political world and the well? Entertainment sure. World? I
2: mean, like in entertainment, you're selling if you're an actor or. Celebrity or whatever, you're selling yourself. Your brand is you, and so and you're trying to say relevant. You know, you want to keep working. I want to keep working. Um, I don't want to get uh, voted out next election. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and this is true of of people in D.C. as well. They're selling themselves. They're trying to appeal to the masses. Um, It's very confusing, perhaps you could say, to be a woman Mm -hmm. under those circumstances in both instances.
1: Um, uh, Do you feel like those feelings have made you more cautious about, you know, what you say and and those kinds of things? Like, do you do you worry about any of that kind of Stuff in terms of, you know, saying the wrong thing or because that's, a, you know, a lot of politicians are like that. And then, of course, there are politicians like Trump who go the entire opposite direction and, and, you know, and succeed that way. So, how do you, how do you think about that?
2: Well, I mean, me personally, I'm, I'm a good, uh, I think I know how to, to, uh, edit my thoughts well in conversation. <laughs> I, I'm not like, I don't live in fear of me saying the wrong thing, you know, cut to now I'm going to say something that is abhorrent, <laughs> but, um, uh, but the idea of trying to straddle a conversation or controversy and have it both ways or say something, but not saying it. I think for me, for this is now I'm thinking about this in the political world. For me, that's comedically one. I mean, that is just yummy. Let's completely lean into that because I could do that all day long. My fellow Americans, words have many meanings, and sometimes instead of conveying our meaning, they can suggest other meanings and be open to misinterpretation. And because words have many meanings and what we mean to say when we speak those words can mean so many different things, we can confuse our own meaning and misspeak. We've all done it, It happens to the best of us. Well, yesterday, it happened to me, folks, in a private moment that unbeknownst to me was surreptitiously and illegitimately recorded. I misspoke. I'd like now to clarify that misspeaking. I did not and never would mean what some people have inferred I meant when I used the words I accidentally chose in that offhand moment. I meant to speak purely factually and to imply no inherent criticism of any nature.
1: Yeah, and that kind of speaks to the conversation that's happened for a long time about Veep and how reality outpaced it. And yeah, you know, there's a, there was a level of awkwardness or cringe, shame situation that then felt like it no longer existed in politics. So it kind of, it didn't mean the same thing as what you were trying to put forward on Veep.
2: Yeah, he really, uh... that administration... And Trump specifically was doing a better version of our show, but it was not a funny version. It was a tragic version and continues to be tragic.
1: Definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we want to do at the end here is our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm just going to run through a few of these questions about firsts in your career um, in comedy. Mm. Starting with childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up?
2: Yes. Soupy Sales. There was a show called Soupy Sales when I was a little girl. And he made me laugh. And so did Captain Kangaroo. I think it was on, it was either on either Captain Kangaroo or Soupy Sales when ping pong balls would fall down on them. And it would always be a surprise. I mean, it's sort of like a jack in the box (laughs) kind of a joke, you know, it was like and ping pong balls. And I remember howling, laughing over that. I, I can't say that that joke's
1: going to stand the test
2: of time.
1: <laughs> it worked for you then, though. Yeah, it worked for me then. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh?
2: Probably when I put some raisins up my nose when I was about three <laughs> or four. That did it? Yeah, to make my mom laugh, and she did. And then I inhaled the raisins, and we had to go to the emergency room, get them out of my nose, of my nasal cavity
1: do you have an audition story that stands out in your memory either because it's, it didn't go well, maybe something that you, you wanted, but didn't get, but that, uh, that you remember now, uh, for, for for how, how it went.
2: Um, I remember, um, I auditioned for a musical. Uh, this is back during SNL days and there was a musical. I do not remember the name of it, but it was going to be like off Broadway. So it was sort of a, it was a big deal. And I had to come in and sing. And then I had to do this, uh, I had to do a dramatic scene afterwards. And first I sang and I got completely flummoxed and got sort of stage fright and couldn't sing and couldn't almost hear my own voice. And it was just like an utter disaster. And I was so upset that it had gone so badly that in the scene, in which it was a speaking scene after that was a dramatic scene i wept through the entire thing oh, but it was only gosh. because my singing had been so bad <laughs> and the i remember that the casting agent called the casting director called my agent and said don't i'm not sure she has the the vocal chops but her uh, performance in the <laughs> scene was was like
1: I mean, it was performance ready. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Her ability to cry was Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you remember the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, someone who you just really look up to in the comedy world and what it was like to meet them for the first time?
2: Um, Yes. I mean, I remember I did uh, hanging out with Mary Tyler Moore and we had to do, we were actually doing a photo shoot. I'm going to say it was maybe for Entertainment Weekly or something. And I was so smitten to be with her, of course. And um, the photographer asked us to stand t- In fact, the, I think the photo made it. I, I think you can probably find it. To stand sort of close together and put our palms together. And we did that. And just the fact of my hand touching hers just completely uh, <laughs> gutted me. I was so overcome. Yeah.
1: Finally, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened?
2: (laughs) Yeah, there is a story, but it it wasn't that it wasn't funny, it just wasn't usable. So, this (laughs) is on uh, this was during Seinfeld days, and I don't remember what the scene was, but I was in a scene with Michael Richards, and I believe Jerry was in the scene. And our wonderful director, Andy Ackerman, we'd shot the scene once or twice. And it was like a three shot. You know what I mean? So it was like the three of us sort of lined up. And maybe the camera would be just like maybe to my waist or, you know, just at the chest level. Right? So it wasn't full body. (laughs) And Andy gave Michael the direction on the next take to make it broader, make it bigger. No, he's talking about Richards. You know what? So already you know. And we we roll camera. And we start the scene, and all of a Michael goes down to the ground, gets on his on his hands <laughs> like he was doing a handstand, and starts doing donkey kicks in the air. <laughs> and so these just these feet would just keep coming into the frame like this. It made no sense. <laughs> it was the one of the funniest things I have ever experienced, and we didn't use it, but it was really funny.
1: <laughs> That's great. Um, well, Julia, thank you so much for talking with me today. And I think the, the new movie is is really fantastic. So I, I think everyone's going to really enjoy it. And um, I hope so. Congrats on everything. It's been just a pleasure to talk with you.
2: Likewise. Thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you too. And uh, yeah, go see the movie. <laughs>
1: Well, that was a very big deal for me, and I hope you enjoyed it almost as much as I did. Thank you so much to Julia Louis-Dreyfus for taking the time. You Hurt My Feelings will be in theaters starting next Friday, May 26th. And please do yourself a favor and check out Julia's podcast, Wiser Than Me, wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.